Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis. And I'm Lexi Bear. And Lexi, this is kind of a story close to home for you because you look like some of the victims of this most notorious serial killer in America. Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. Oh my gosh, it's scary when you look at his victims' photos and you, you're like right up his alley. So in 1978, Ted Bundy made an impressive performance in front of reporters as the Leon County Sheriff Ken Katsaris read him his indictment for the Chi Omega murders at FSU. And this is what Bundy said to those indictments. Theodore Robert Bundy, you are charged, indictment, two counts burglary, two counts murder in the first degree, three counts attempted murder in the first degree, design or attempt to affect the death of said Lisa Lee. My chance to talk to the press. Contrary to Section 78204, Florida statute. I'll plead not guilty right now. And your grand jury is being... Yeah, not guilty. Well, this is after a four-year multi-state killing spree, so he's feeling pretty confident. So you have, as my little podcast researcher, my little bear cub, <laughs> um, you looked into this. What made him snap? What made Ted Bundy start killing these women? Well, in his childhood, a childhood friend on the Bundy tape said that he always wanted to be better than what he actually was. And in college, he had a girlfriend who was upper class, educated, brown hair, brown eyes, Diane Edwards, and she ghosted him. Oh, so they how long did they date? I think a year, not even. So this is after he finished undergrad. So she may have been in his life for a couple of years, but in the conversations with the killer Ted Bundy tapes, the relationship had a lasting impact on him. And the budding serial killer, according to many criminologists, said that she influenced the type of women he hunted and with the rage that he felt for them. In the Bundy tapes, he said that he agonized over what Diane was doing and he was plotting his revenge against her specifically. That next year, he just went on to kill all over Seattle in the Washington area. Ted's violent killings are believed to have begun in Seattle. He got his bachelor's degree from the University of Washington in 72 and committed his first official killings in 1974 with Karen Ooh, Sparks. So the relationship with Diane Edwards was somewhere in there. His breaking point. She's still alive today. I wonder how she feels about that. I wonder how she looks. Yeah, that's a good question. How old would she be? I can't even do the math. But apparently when they broke up, she eventually said that she dumped him because he was pitifully weak. Ugh. So he had to show her. So it's interesting about him because his crime spree spans from February 1st, 1974 to February 9th, 1978. It, you know, you've got the Samuel Littles who are prolific for a long time and don't get caught. This guy who is smarter than your average bear. He got caught multiple times. In fact, he broke out of prison twice. Shake my head, Colorado. I know. Still shaking my head at you. <laughs> so 40 years after Bundy's execution in Florida's electric chair, old Sparky, the actual number of murders that he committed, that Theodore Bundy committed, it remains murky. It's unknown. He's admitted to 30 of them, but there are a lot of Jane Doe's that are believed to be in Idaho, like hitchhikers. That was a big thing back then. He had burial sites, too, for his victims, and eventually the police found it. Oh, they found the burial sites. Well, they're saying he's admitted, as you said, to 30, but 
the true body count is higher. It's thought to be much higher, like around 100, which will put him on the same level as Samuel Little. So with the recent advances in DNA profiling, it's possible some cold cases can still be solved and attributed to Bundy. We only have his word right now on the Which 30. isn't shit. You got that right. Ted Bundy's violent killings again began in Seattle. He got his bachelor's degree from the University of Washington 1972, committed his first official killings. The first one is Karen Sparks. She's widely believed to be the first victim of Ted Bundy, 18 years old. The UW student was attacked in her sleep January 4th, 1974. After sneaking into her basement bedroom, Bundy beat Sparks with a metal rod that he tore from the bed frame and they rammed it into her vagina. Ugh. Take that, Diane. (laughs) Really, though? So she was one of the lucky ones. She survived. She did? Yes. Spent 10 days in a coma, suffered permanent brain damage from the attack. She woke up with no memory of her brutal beating. Can you imagine? She was one of the lucky ones. So uh, Bundy's next victim was 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy. Oh, I remember her. She was a popular student also at the University of Washington. She was a reporter. She gave weather and ski reports on the local radio station. We're going to get six to eight inches tonight. I love skiing. You missed the joke. Oh, whoops. (laughs) Uh, And her colleagues found her disappearance extremely suspicious because she always showed up. She was, you know, you could count on her. Well, he had a victim type. He loved to go for girls that were put together that usually wouldn't put themselves in situations to be missing or to be missed. He went for very highly educated girls. Attractive. Attractive, not just attractive, but educated, well put together, usually from a upper middle class family. So we're speaking about his next victim. The first one, Karen Sparks, survived, but the second one, Linda Ann Healy, police found blood on Healy's bed sheets and pillow, but not enough to indicate that she had bled to death. Ugh. And no indication as to where she could have gone. So this was really suspicious. Her nightgown hung in the closet with a ring of dried blood around the neck. But some of her clothes, her pillowcase, and her backpack were missing. It seemed whoever had bludgeoned her had crept into her room, also in the basement. Another one in the basement. Don't live in the basement. No basements in Florida. Yeah, accessible via an extra key that she and her roommates kept in their mailbox. Well, it's better than under the welcome mat, right? Yeah. Welcome. So apparently she was knocked unconscious. He removed her pajamas and dressed her in fresh clothes. Three days after abduction, according to the stranger beside me by Aunt Rule, a male voice called 911 and said, Listen, and listen carefully. The person who attacked that girl on the 8th of last month and the person who took Linda Healy away are one and the same. So he's saying the person who attacked Karen Sparks and the person who took Linda Healy away are one and the same. It was him. He was outside both houses. He was seen. Police never got the caller's name. I can't believe he called the police on himself. He got, yeah, and he even told him, look, he was outside both their houses. People saw him. It was like a sport to him. He was just going and going and going for the next four years until the spree finally was put to an end. That's right. In 1974, March now, March of 74, Donna Gail Manson, no relation to Charlie, he killed her, and apparently he incinerated her skull in his girlfriend's fireplace, his girlfriend, Elizabeth Klepfer. And he goes, he said, this is probably the one she's least likely to forgive me for, poor Liz. I mean, <laughs> poor so girl. You know, she called the police on him multiple times. 
So he burned up her skull in his girlfriend's fireplace, and it just amazes me that he actually had girlfriends. He had a lot of charisma. It was I cute. mean, he was a charismatic, charming guy. Ladies loved him, and he lived with Liz for years with her daughter. But there was one girl that he took on a date that I remember that I wanted to talk about. He used the alias Chris Hagen, and he said he was a graduate student from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and he went on a date with the girl that lived across the hall, and this is what she said. You can totally tell that she slept with him. Francis Massey lived across the hall from Bundy and knew him as Chris. She said she was one of his few friends. What kind of person was he? Um, a quiet type person. Aloof and friendly. You talk to him? Yes, sometimes. Did you ever feel any fears being around him? No, not fear. When you talked to him, what would you talk about? Everyday stuff. Um, how he's how he's doing today and things like that. Well, it's kind of hard to generalize a character in a living situation like that. Can you go out to dinner with him one time? dinner once that's kind (laughs) of knowing what you know now does that frighten you to put that much trust in a person well under the circumstances that we went out to dinner it was pretty casual and we trusted each other enough to go out to dinner Uh, just as friends do go it's like he was a beetle like Paul McCartney, but the only similarity was that he drove a beetle. <laughs> she wasn't scared because they were F buddies. She's like, I'm good. <laughs> so then you had another one in April, Susan Elaine Rancourt. Like all of Ted's early victims, she was 18. She disappeared from a college campus. This time it was Central Washington State College, east of Seattle. And like his other victims, Rancourt was studious. She was a biology major, 4.0 grade average. She was driven. Unlike his other victims, though, she was blonde and blue-eyed. His others were brunettes. Yes, I think he had a few other victims that were blonde as well, so going outside of his normal victim profile, kind of like Samuel Little. And you look like his victims. You're actually a brunette, but... I dye my hair blonde. Aha. So at 8 p.m. on April 17th, Rancourt put a load of laundry in the washing machine, headed to a regular dorm advisor's meeting. Nobody saw her after the meeting. Da-da-da, Ted strikes. Her clothes remained in the washing machine until a frustrated student took them out and put them in a heap on a table. Don't you hate when that happens? Talk about airing dirty laundry. Oh, yeah. Wow. Little did they know she was never coming back for the clothes. Her disappearance prompted a massive search. No results. This is so scary. So only later, evidence mounted that Rancourt was one of Ted Bundy's victims, and other students recall an eerie detail from that night that she disappeared. They had been approached by a man named Ted who had his arm in a sling. So he did that, too. That's how he was manipulative. He'd, have, he'd either be on a crutch or have his arm in a sling. Can you help me? Can you help me with the rigging on my sailboat? Oh, by the way, it's at my parents' house. you got to get in my car with me. Oh, my gosh. Don't help people. <laughs> I mean, it became an epidemic where girls were being told to walk together in two or threes and only go through front doors. And it really started to shake all of Washington, Seattle area. Yes. So in May 1974, Roberta Kathleen Parks. Oh, she was beautiful. Yes. She was the first known Ted Bundy victim in Oregon. So he's now crossed state lines. 
The student disappeared somewhere from her dorm room at Oregon State University and a coffee shop where her friends were waiting for her. Investigators later discovered her skull among many others at the Taylor Mountain in Washington. What do you know about Taylor Mountain? I know it was a location for his burial grounds and he hiked there frequently, so he probably revisited the site and had sex with the bodies. Yeah, he stopped by for a cold one. So then in June, so you got May, June now, June 1974, Brenda Carroll Ball and Georgianne Hawkins, who looks like you, witnesses last saw 22-year-old Brenda Ball at 2 a.m. outside the Flame Tavern south of Seattle talking to a man with a sling. And then the other, remember a man on crutches struggling with a briefcase near the University of Washington the night that sorority girl Georgianne Hawkins vanished. I mean, he was on a spree. Yes, totally. Each one of them, this is for you, Diane. It really was all about Diane. It took some time for Seattle police to make a connection between the handicapped stranger and the accounts of women from Ellensburg, where Susan Rancourt disappeared two months earlier. So their witnesses remembered being approached by a man struggling with stacks of books. So in July now, Bundy actually takes two girls from the same park on the same day. That one just freaked me out the most. Two women in one day at a park on a beautiful afternoon, broad daylight, tons of witnesses, gone without a trace. Yeah, Lake Sammamish State Park in Issaquah, 20 miles east of Seattle. The brazen abductions happened in broad daylight. Later, witnesses reported seeing a man with his left arm in a sling approached them, introduced himself as Ted. Well, he kidnapped them at different times in the same day. But there was one woman who got away and witnessed one of them get kidnapped. So with this, the police finally had something tangible. The woman described him having sandy blonde hair. He's 5'10", 160 pounds, and he had a brown VW bug. And Liz saw this and called the police multiple times to report her own boyfriend. Because they commissioned a sketch. Yes. So she makes a statement, probably gave police his photo. Didn't they show it around? Yeah, and they couldn't ID him as the Ted in the park. My God. And she continued to date him even when he went to Utah for law school, where he continued to kill. So police had no idea just how close they were to Ted Bundy. He worked, get this, at Seattle's suicide hotline. So, hold on, don't kill yourself, I'll be right there. Take care of it for you. Good grief. <laughs> Seattle Police Department even nominated him to be the director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. Talk about right under their nose. Here's a serial killer that's counseling people to not kill themselves. He was a deranged killer that was just able to blend in. Here he is saving lives with one hand and taking lives with another. I mean, he was into politics, too, apparently. He was a clean-cut Nixon Republican. Oh, whoa. He's a conservative. So his colleague, Ann Rule, I believe she wrote a book, even reported her suspicions about Bundy to police after seeing the sketch, just like Liz. And authorities noted that Ted Bundy did, in fact, drive a bronze Volkswagen bug. Nobody followed up. So after Otten Nashland vanished from Lake Sammamish, the disappearances of young women in the Pacific Northwest abruptly stopped. Something strange happened. He moved on. So having been accepted to the University of Utah as a law student, he arrived in Salt Lake City, August 1974. So he's doing all this killing, and he's still a student, and he's taking the LSAT and applying to law Mind school. Mind you, he's still dating Liz, too, but they're doing long distance. So it didn't take long for him to pick up old habits, though. Now October. So he kind of went through early fall without killing anybody. Had to study. First October 2nd, 16-year-old cheerleader Nancy Wilcox went to buy a pack of gum vanished. Witnesses later thought she'd been seen riding in a Volkswagen bug. 
Hello, is nobody connecting the dots with this VW bug? Well, it was 1970s, so they probably didn't know about each other. That's true. Well, now he's going to turn into a police officer, a fake police officer. This story is crazy to me. Yes, Melissa Smith's father was the local police chief, and she was killed by Bundy, who likely posed as a police officer when he abducted her. Her body was found nine days later in Summit Park in the mountains east of Salt Lake City. They obviously didn't know about him in Utah. Right. Then on Halloween, so we're still in October, Bundy struck again 17-year-old Laura Ann Ami disappeared on the night of October 31st after leaving a cafe. Her family didn't even realize she was missing for a few days. Hikers found her frozen body in the mountains about a month later. Another wow. burial ground. He just left this trail of dead people. So then November, we've gone October, November 1974, Carol DeRanch and Debbie Kent would prove to be crucial for the eventual capture and conviction of Bundy. First posing as a police officer named Rosalind. He told the 18-year-old her car was broken into, right? Yes, this is what she said happened. A man approached me and said, is your license plate KAD-032? And I said yes, and he introduced himself as Officer Rosalind. And he said that someone had been caught trying to break into my car. And so she smartly asked him to show her some sort of identification. And he promptly just flipped out his wallet and showed me a badge. I thought it was a little strange, but I just thought, you know, maybe he's off duty, um, undercover. It occurred to me that he wasn't who he said he was and that something really bad was going to happen. And he grabbed my wrist and, and put a handcuff on my left wrist. I, I knew he was going to kill me. And I, you know, I thought, no one's ever going to know what happened to me. I fought outside the car and I finally just broke away and the car started coming towards us. So I broke away and ran towards the car. But the interesting thing, that handcuffed on her wrist, they found the key that matched it. Really? And that's how they got him. You know, Bundy was so mad that day, he went and killed someone else. He did. He killed 17-year-old Debbie Kent after the performance of a high school play in Bountiful, Utah. This time, he succeeded in abducting the woman. And despite kidnapping and killing Kent, Bundy left behind a crucial clue in the parking lot. The key that matched the cuffs that DeRange escaped with earlier that day. He was getting sloppy. How chilling is that? So although police were unable to connect Bundy to Kent and other similar kidnappings, DeRanch would play a central role in his 1976 conviction when her testimony identified him as the man who kidnapped and assaulted her. So he was sentenced to prison in Utah for a minimum of 1 to 15 years. But before his arrest in the DeRanch case, he fled to Colorado and was killing people there. And he wasn't arrested for the DeRanch kidnapping in, until October 1975. So he was going back and forth. Something I want to note is that when he was going through the kidnapping trial, he was still dating Liz, and he had the support of the Mormon church behind him. So a lot of people thought he was innocent, and he was just manipulating everyone. So after a pause in his activities, perhaps Durant's escape rattled him. The serial killer resumed his spree in January. This time, operating in Colorado, he kidnapped 23-year-old Karen Campbell at the hotel in Aspen. She's a registered nurse in town to ski and attend a medical convention. And on the night of January 12th, she left her fiance and his children in the hotel lobby, and she vanished without a trace. Then, 26-year-old uh, Colorado ski instructor Julie Cunningham went to meet her roommate at a local bar. Bunny approached her, pretended to ask for help with his crutches before kidnapping her. Then Susan Curtis, no relation, 1975, 15 years old, was killed by Bundy while attending the Mormon Youth Conference. 
And like many of his victims, she disappeared from a college campus. And she was only 15 years old, one of his younger victims. Law enforcement finally caught up to him. They discovered masks, handcuffs, and blunt weapons in Bundy's car during a routine stop. A sp- uh, suspicious but lacking evidence, they placed him under surveillance, tracked down his Volkswagen, which he had sold to a teenage boy. Police found physical evidence tying him to several of the missing women. Then escape victim Carol DeRanche identified him from a lineup on October 2nd. So after his kidnapping trial, he was shipped to Colorado to face these murder charges, and he decided to defend himself. And that gave him privacy in the courtroom's office library. I mean, the events that followed are almost too ridiculous to be true. He was convicted for the Durange kidnapping, sentenced in June of 1976, escaped a year later by jumping out the second-story courthouse window. He was recaptured six days later, then escaped from prison by cutting through a hole in the ceiling. That's December 30th, 1977. He proceeded to hop around from Colorado to Chicago, to Michigan, to Atlanta, and ultimately to Florida, where his gruesome crimes would continue. And of course, we all know he ended up at another university, Florida State University in Tallahassee. Go Knowles. Yeah, so where he targeted the Chi Omega sorority house. Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman were brutally murdered while they were sleeping in that sorority house. While he was in that house, he also preyed on two other people. Kathy Kleiner was one of them, and she is a survivor. Here's what she had to say about his attack on the first two girls, Lisa and Margaret. That night when Ted came up, he went to Margaret's room, which was the first room on the left, and attacked Margaret and raped her and strangled her, and then put the sheets up to her neck to make it, make it look like she was sleeping. He then went in and attacked Lisa, and he did the same thing. He um, actually bit her at that point, uh, which ended up being um, a way that he was convicted because it was definitely him that made the bite marks, which meant he was in the house that night. So Kleiner, this was in an interview with CBS News. She said that he had snuck into the bedroom of 21-year-old Margaret Bowman, bludgeoned her to death with a piece of firewood. He then proceeded to the room of Lisa Levy, who was 20, beat her, strangled her, tore one of her nipples, bit deeply into her left buttock, and raped her with a bottle of hairspray. So tell me about the bite mark, because that came back to bite him. It really did. As of now, it's not as conclusive as DNA evidence and isn't admissible in court. I believe. But back then they got a warrant and the sheriff actually went in there personally and got him. Take a mold of his teeth? To get a mold of his teeth. Ah, open wide. Let's get those teeth. So they must have matched the bite mark. But back then, you know, forensics wasn't that great. But after he killed those two, he was unsatisfied and he went to attack Bowman and Levy's housemates, Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner. So then I woke up. Just in time, I saw the figure, the silhouette, just a black shadow. As I was looking at it, I um, saw this figure dressed in black, all black, raise his arm up over his head. He had a log in it that he had picked up, a piece of firewood. He struck me in the face with so much force that it shattered my jaw. It cut my cheek open until it was almost back to my ear. Also, I almost bit my tongue off. Wow. Shattered her jaw. Yeah, I mean, you should see her today. It's, you know, they had to do multiple surgeries. But, you know, he may have added Chandler and Kleiner to his list of victims, but somebody pulled into the sorority parking lot and they had the 
drapes open and the headlights flashed in the room and their lives were spared. Here's Kleiner. Once he attacked me, he went to my roommate, Karen, attacked her, um, heard that I was still alive and since Bundy didn't leave any victims alive, I believe he came to me to go ahead and finish me off. But just before he did, we were on the second floor of the building. We had our curtains open because we had plants hanging. Someone was coming in the back parking lot. And as they did, the lights shone up into our bedroom. They illuminated the room. It was just a very bright light. And I could see, see it even though I was uh, laying in my bed with my eyes closed. At this point, I think Bundy thought he was seen. He ran out of our room, down the front stairs, and out the sorority front doors. Yeah, the sorority sister, Nita Neary had just arrived home and she would go on to provide eyewitness testimony against Bundy. And although the sorority girls escaped their lives, both Chandler and Kleiner suffered permanent injury. And the paramedics, stunned by the intensity of the attack, they mistakenly told Kleiner that someone had shot her in the face. What's crazy is they weren't even his last victims. His last victim was 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. Kidnapped Leach around her school in Lake City, Florida, February 9th. The little girl was going to meet a friend and head to class together. Two months later, her body was found 35 miles away in the Suwannee River State Park. Wow. She was his last victim. That was it. But what led to his arrest was an illegal U-turn. Who would have thought? So the police officer named David Lee noticed Bundy driving erratically on February 15th, pulled him over, discovered that his Volkswagen Beetle was stolen. More importantly, he also found Bundy in possession of the IDs of several of the women. And another fact is he resisted arrest and refused to identify himself until they let him call his girlfriend, Liz. And he prepared her for this news to break nationwide. He said it's going to be bad. He said it's going to be real bad, Liz. His arrest led to his conviction, sentenced to death three times. The next several years saw a slow trickle of confessions that confirmed what police had long expected, along with some surprises. 1989, he was finally executed by the electric chair. But what's really interesting is that He got the death penalty, but his former attorney says that he did get him a plea deal, but he turned it down. And actually, here's audio from Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes with the attorney. I got a deal for Ted Bundy to avoid the death penalty if he pled guilty and to a life sentence in Florida, Utah, and Colorado, and Washington, more or less. And everybody knows we're going to do it, and he turns around and says, I'm not going to do it. In, In Miami, when he was in the cell, I had come there to, I had not represented him anymore after he turned down the plea bargain, but I was going to be a witness in his trial. And he was, we spent four or five hours together. That's when he gave me most of the details. He told me he killed more than 100 people, and not only women. And he was crying, which I've never seen him do before. So he's a sociopath, and most sociopaths don't cry. And most sociopaths never say they're a bad person. And Ted looked up to me and he said, John, I want to be a good person. I'm just not. So that to me was really interesting because most sociopaths never admit they're evil at all. And I think Ted really knew he was evil. Well, this goes back to his childhood, always wanting to be something he wasn't. In all of his cases, he defended himself. He never became a lawyer, and that was his chance to be a lawyer. He said he was innocent. I think he really thought he was going to walk out of there a free man. Yeah, that's how we started this whole thing out. This is with the Leon County Sheriff who read him his indictment. Theodore Robert Bundy. You are charged, indictment, two counts burglary, two counts murder in the first degree, three counts attempted murder in the first degree. I'll plead not guilty right now. And your grand jury is being... 
So not guilty. He didn't take the plea deal. And he went down in flames, literally. I mean, even on death row, he had people believing in him. He was married to another woman, Carol Ann Boone, and fathered a baby with her. So it seems like he was living the life while he was alive in prison. But with serial killers, they want to be in control. So actually giving them death instead of life in prison where they have absolutely no control over their life, you know, every minute of their day is controlled by somebody else. It's actually death is a relief for them, I think. Well, I think that's the end game. They want to do everything they set out to do. And then once it's over, they don't want to be here to deal with the consequences. In many ways, they're their own last victim. But I think Ted wanted to live. He tried so hard to prove he was innocent when he clearly wasn't. After he killed all those people, charged with murder in the 70s, sentenced to death, he managed to make one final contribution to society before his execution. He aided in the capture and arrest of Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. So at the time, he was awaiting electrocution, which would come three years later. But during one interview session, Bundy suggested, because they needed information and they knew that these were similar serial killings and that he would have insight, he suggested that the killer was most likely revisiting the dump sites to engage in sexual intercourse with the bodies. He advised the investigators that in this case, if they find a fresh grave, stake it out, wait for the killer to return, and the theory proved to be true. The police were able to use this information, collect samples, and provide evidence for an arrest warrant. However, it took police until 2001 to finally arrest Gary Ridgway. But the information Ted Bundy gave them helped them. I mean, Bundy was doing anything he could not to die. But die he did, and then he haunted you after his death. Oh, man, this is embarrassing. So finally, we're going to end on a hilarious note because Lexi was watching, what, the Bundy tapes? The Bundy tapes. And you were terrified and someone's knocking on your door and you thought somehow Bundy rose from the dead. I really thought he was back. So you fired off an email to the association to complain, right? Yeah. Here it is. Hello, I live in Unit 124, and on Saturday at 5.17 p.m., an unknown person or persons aggressively knocked on my door, on and off for several minutes. After the first knock, which went on for two minutes straight, I tried to check the peephole <laughs> to see if anyone was there. It and was no- Bundy. And no one was. I then tried to phone family members out of concern, and the knocking began again for approximately three minutes. Earlier this year, a neighbor aggressively knocked on my door over a parking misunderstanding. <laughs> I did not answer the door because it was in the evening, and it made me feel very unsafe. Like Bundy might be coming back for you. I didn't know if it was my neighbor or Bundy, and honestly, I didn't know what would be worse. <laughs> Of course, I signed the first email, so high and mighty, best, Alexis Bear. And then what happened? And then I replied to that email once I realized I'm a numbnuts. Sorry, dot, dot, dot. It was a neighbor notifying me about my car lights being on. Please disregard my last email. So this is really interesting because your car lights were on, and the car lights saved the life of those two sorority sisters at Chi Omega, Kathy Kleiner, the one that survived, and we heard the audio from her. If that person had driven in with their car lights left on, she wouldn't be alive. So this is weird that you had the same experience with the car lights. That's making me freak out now, Karen. Like, I just got over the nightmares. Bundy strikes again with the car lights. He's coming to visit, coming to say hello. Well, until next time, hopefully Bundy won't kill you. That's Full Reader. Thanks, Lexi. Love being here. All right, we'll see you next week. To be your best every day... You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. 
And that's where the Sleep Number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.